Good morning. How is everyone this morning? If you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61, uh, we will read uh, verses 1 to 3. If you are using the Pew Bible in front of you, I believe that is page 739. If you will please read with me. Verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord, for the display of his splendor. Please pray with me this morning. God, we are before you as a church, as a body. Uh, God, we are seeking to love you, to serve you, to be called your servants. And God, uh, the prophet Isaiah is seeking the same thing, uh, had sought the same thing to be that that the people of Israel would be before you, a planting for you, oaks of righteousness for the display of your splendor. God, pray that you would guide us in this, that you would give us strength in this task, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. So if you look at these three, uh, these three verses, they are actually a, uh, a poem independent of the surrounding text. They... Uh, academics actually say they are they don 't fit in with the rest of the text. They are a standalone piece of of literature uh, a poem um, definitely reminiscent, definitely echoing isaiah six eight that famous chapter where that famous verse where the prophet Isaiah answers god 's call with the statement, "Here am I, Lord, send me." Isaiah is anointed of God, and from there there are three sections, three tones in this in this poem, if you will. Obviously, the first in, uh, in first w- verse 1 are action verbs. Proclaim, sent, proclaim again, release. God is anointing the prophet Isaiah and he is calling him to action. Verses 2 and 3 take this action, codify it, call it the year of the Lord's favor. And then the, in the third... or. It, as part of that, creates a contrast between the oil of joy, the oil of mourning, a crown of joy versus ashes, garment of praise instead of mourning. Finally, all of this concludes with an objective. Isaiah is called, he is led to a task, he is led to action, he is brought through, and what is the result? That the people of God would be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord with a motivation for the display of his splendor. Hence the title, Live to Make God Look Good. If you take this passage, you look through it, you see that all of this culminates in this mighty planting. Oaks are known as trees of renown, of strength. They are, they are treasures. That is to be the people of God for the display of God's splendor. 
God has called Isaiah to be a leader among his people to show his people how to live to make God look good. This year of the Lord's favor in the center of the passage definitely calls to mind the year of Jubilee. If you read the the Old Testament law of God, you will find that every 50 years the people are to return land that they have purchased because God's people are called to be a covenant people. God's inheritance on the, on the people of Israel, his gift to them, his love for them, is shown in the land. This is a way that God is able to provide for even the most downtrodden, the poor, the oppressed, by giving them land where they can care for themselves, where they can reap God's blessings of, of produce, of food, of identity. Take that a step farther, we are now in the New Testament, and Christ is known as our inheritance. He is our redemption. Just as the year of Jubilee redeems these people who are oppressed, who are downtrodden, who have had to sell their land, reclaims them into God's inheritance, Christ is that parallel in the New Testament. And he takes that in Luke uh, chapter 4, and he actually takes this passage... He reads it from the scroll of Isaiah. He sits down to teach, and his teaching is, this passage has been fulfilled in your presence. Obviously, the people of Israel thought this was blasphemy. They did not know Christ as Messiah. We see this, and we respond with wonder. Then we should look back at this passage and realize both the weight of it and the glory in it, because while Isaiah 61 may be about Isaiah and Israel... Christ himself echoes these words throughout his teachings for us, the church, calls us to the same tasks that Isaiah has been called to by the Spirit of God. My prayer for you as I began this sermon, and God has been, has been burying this scripture deep into my heart for the past month. It was out of a, a, that that I decided to preach on this. My prayer for you has been that God would be able to grow this church, grow his people into oaks of righteousness, a planting for the display of his splendor. My prayer for Aaron and I as we move overseas is that God would be instrumental, use us in some way through his strength to grow God's people into oaks of righteousness. Why? Because if there's anything in this world... Uh, this brutal, hard, difficult life that would qualify as a meaning or purpose for our existence, it is in that final statement that Isaiah makes for the display of his splendor. We as a people, we as humanity, are to live to make God look good. Throughout Scripture, this is echoed repeatedly. Isaiah 43, 7 says that God created the world for the display of His glory. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Christ went to the cross for the joy set before Him. He despised shame to sit down at the right hand of the Father, the most glorious, most respected seat in heaven. And there are other places. I I encountered this when I was 12. Um, this idea that we are called to make God, uh, give God the glory, to live to make God look good, and I encountered it in a fun way. It was my very first scout camping trip, and I learned some passages of Scripture so that I could avoid digging the latrine. (laughs) If 
my my uh, a good friend of mine, his brother, their dad, my dad, they start we started a scout troop together and as incentive to learn scripture, this thing called a catechism, uh, our dads, the leaders in our troop, agreed with us, and we agreed to it enthusiastically, that if we learned this catechism, which in, if you've been to a traditional church, you know what it is, questions, answers, and proofs from scripture to, to, for teaching. So if we memorized this and could quote this, our scoutmaster would do the dirty work of, of digging the, the latrine for us for that trip. Well, we all memorized this catechism, and indeed our scoutmaster dug the latrine. And shame on me, I, I had to dig the latrine a couple campouts later, but this one I was successful. And actually, I still remember that, that catechism. Spurgeon, this was Spurgeon's catechism, and he... It asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Or what is man's purpose? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The scriptural proofs of that are 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then Psalm 73.25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As a, as a people, as humanity, we are to live to make God look good. Isaiah was called to tasks that built up the people of Israel, redeemed them, made them into oaks of righteousness for the display of God's splendor. And as a church, that is what we are called to to do those good works, to invest our time in ourselves, to live to make God look good. But this idea of giving God all the glory and credit and and worship in our life, it's easy to struggle with that. I struggled with it because it almost seems as if God could be called selfish. Or if you want to use brutal, frank, human terms, it could be seen that God is egomaniacal. And many people in pop culture, biggest, some of the biggest names in pop culture agree with us, uh, or agree with this statement. Uh, Brad Pitt, Oprah, both have published statements, made statements about this idea of God being selfish because he is requiring our credit or the credit for our life, the, uh, uh, our worship, our glory. Brad Pitt told Parade Magazine in 2007, he said, Religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you there is something bigger than you, and it is going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. I grew up believing it in it, and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me, you have to say that I'm the best, and then then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego. And I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. And realistically, when you you look at it, Brad Pitt hit the nail on the head. God requires us to give him the credit and the glory from our lives. But that doesn't, does not make him selfish. If we acknowledge God, tell him that we cannot do this of our own strength, this is 
This is the gist of the, the sinner's prayer where we say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't do it without you. Brad, who was a, actually a Southern Baptist boy from Missouri, and I, a Southern Baptist boy from Kansas, both wrestled with this and we came to different conclusions. Brad wanted to claim that he could spiritually cut his own mustard in spiritually purifying himself. And there's a fine line of definition. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is that passage, that famous passage where Paul is talking about uh, salvation comes by faith through grace. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. If we can do this of our own without giving the glory to God, without asking God for strength, we are boasting, we are taking pride in our own work. And I'm confident that all of you will agree Jesus is not selfish. I can probably say, period, end of argument, end of statement. Jesus is not selfish. Look at what Jesus did. He died on the cross for us, gave up his position as God. We've talked through what Christ claimed to be through his quoting of the, the passage in Isaiah. Uh, we, can, we can talk about Christ being the pure love. Christ defined love in John by saying, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his own life for his friends. Christ died for our eternity. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I can keep going talking about the ways that Christ gave up, sacrificed for us. God is not selfish. He gave up Christ. Christ died. God is not selfish. John Piper defines it this way. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy ego, but the act of infinite giving. The reason God seeks our supreme praise or that Jesus, our supreme love, is not because he's needy and won't be fully God until he gets it, but because we are needy and won't be fully happy until we give it. So what I'm, what I'm trying to show is that we as humans have spiritual needs. God is working to fill our own spiritual needs. And I don't know many people in the world who, des who deny that humans have a spiritual need. There is something more beyond ourselves that we are seeking to fill. In the church, we often call it a spiritual hole, a God-shaped void in our hearts that we need to fill. So let's today call it self-care, spiritual self-care, and talk a little bit about this part about enjoying God forever, this other half of giving glory to God. God made us with appetites. Appetites are good. We need to fill them with Yahweh God rather than, than the other stuff. Uh, to quote another famous theologian, C.S. Lewis, he says, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an act, as an end uh, into itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, can, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with uh, drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis is saying in the spiritual world there is infinite depth to our spiritual appetite. He says that philosophers call desire bad, but God calls self-care and deep spiritual desire good. Now, for definition, we all know gluttony is simply putting food in our face for no apparent reason beyond appetite. It's bad. We know materialism is very similar. It's simply acquiring things just to acquire things. It is also bad. Those are fraudulent ways of filling an appetite. The self-sacrifice Christ asked from us is a fuller version. It comes with the promise of infinitely deep spiritual contentment and joy. Let's take an example from uh, what's popular here in Marin County. Often you will find people who are seeking spiritual fulfillment, and they look to the Buddha. He was a smart guy. He lived 2,500 years ago. He knew a lot about life. He knew that, that greed, selfishness are, are bad things, and he sought enlightenment to rid himself of those things. However, for most people, what the Buddha said is that enlightenment takes an eternity of searching to find this idea of this spiritual end goal, you need to spend an eternity of searching. Christ, by contrast, says that when we place our trust in him, when we begin to live for him, when we begin to make God, live to make God look good, he will fill us with the things that we desire, spiritual contentment, joy, purpose, meaning. And there is significant self-sacrifice in following Christ. But we begin with, I need you to work through me, asking God, begging God for the strength. Living to make God look good is different than relying on our own strength, boasting about it. It is living to make God look good and boasting about His strength. Instead of an empty searching, you are filling yourself with joy and peace as you live for God. And building joy isn't easy. Uh, it's hard to define. I would define it as whatever pain you're going through. It doesn't, joy doesn't erase that pain, but it's that feeling I got as a 12-year-old when my dad wrapped me in a, in a giant bear hug and helped me understand that, that life was still good even in the presence of that pain or that there was contentment even in the presence of that pain. Three things that I would talk about to build joy, three words that may help define it better, things like proclamation, Good works, contemplation, three items that, that could speed that, uh, that thought along. Christ encouraged this often. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So, as I've said, this, this passage, Isaiah 61, has been running circles around my head for about a month. It is calling Isaiah to good works of building up the people of Israel into oaks of righteousness. Christ appropriates that for himself and commands us to 
bring the body together to do good works to show love. And then the scripture teaches that we are to live to make God look good throughout scripture. Let's go back to our passage. I'm going to read Isaiah 61, 1 to 3 again. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I can easily say this is a missional sermon, that that idea of proclamation is missional. But this is a also a self-care sermon. The idea of enjoying God is a spiritual fulfillment. This is also a mystical sermon where to build the joy, to build a relationship with God, you must spend time in contemplation in that mysticism. This is also a sermon of self-denial where you are called to good works rather than to base enjoyment of, of physical things, material things, materialism. Freedom, healing, joy, things that result in a growth, a planting for the Lord, oaks of righteousness, with the motivation that we are to be a display for God's splendor, glory, and majesty. And a couple questions that I have for you, not to make you ashamed, because I've seen many of these things in this church already, but hopefully to inspire, to provide direction. Is your relationship with God one where you are looking to Him, where you have asked Him already, God, I can't do this on my own. I am a sinner. I am looking to you for salvation. It is your work, your uh, selfless giving of your Son that paves the way for me to have a relationship with you. Are you doing things to build your relationship with God? For me, a mystical, ephemeral thing is made practical with, with even this notebook where I can write down my, my thoughts, my prayers, my musing, my worship. Scratching on a, on a paper with a pen can really make things practical, tangible, that are so mystical. When was the last time you sacrificed financially? When was the last time you sacrificed by giving taking time off and, and whether it's a local project, a, a distant project, contributing, doing good works, whether it's giving a cup of cold water or proclaiming the name of, of Jesus Christ. And when was the last time that you actually, instead of taking the credit for all of these things, instead of saying, yeah, that was, that was a good thing to do, I, I did it because it was a good thing to do, you said, no, I did this in God's strength. I did this because I am a Christian and I am living to make God look good. That, that is the purpose of, of this sermon, to encourage you, to inspire you, ideally to give some direction and, and into this idea of man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Thank you. Amen. Thank you very much, Cal. We do... Praise the Lord for you and glorify Him now as we partake in the Lord's Supper. And if I may invite the deacons to come have a seat at the front. And there is perhaps no better way to glorify 
the Lord than to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. So as we gather today around this table, we take a moment to remember...